and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we are librarians who love to read and talk about books. And today, we are uh, one week away from Thanksgiving. And so we thought today's topic would be about family gatherings, because I know for a lot of people, this year is a year that they aren't going to be able to see at least the number of family members that they would usually see uh, because of COVID. So we thought we could live vicariously through our books, as we so (laughs) often do in different situations. Uh, But before we do that, we have exciting news because Anne and I just saw each other a week ago. Oh, yeah, that's part of it. (laughs) That's the less exciting part of the news. But Anne, why don't you tell everybody why we saw each other? Because I got a dog. Yay! And it was from Hallie. And so um, it was really fun because I got to drive out and pick him up and spend a few days meeting or with her and meeting her boyfriend and, and meeting the dog. And so, yeah, we've been back for about a week now. And it's been an adjustment <laughs> for both of us. <laughs> but um, things seem to be going okay. So he is a little... Some sort of terrier mix, maybe with some Shih Tzu or something in him as well. Um, that's what that's what Hallie thought, right? Would be the case. Yeah. So so, um, but definitely some sort of terrier. And so he's a little bit stocky and and short like that. And um, his name is Joseph, a dog. <laughs> <laughs> but I call him Joseph most of the Joseph, time. Yes. But that's a it's a play on a family joke, so it's I, it makes me laugh every time. But um, he's a little he he has googly eyes and is just a little sweetheart. So I'm I'm really happy that Hallie got him in her her um, rescue and that I saw enough pictures of him and had other people say, "Hey, that looks like a good dog for you." To force me <laughs> into finally getting a dog that I I knew Hallie would get me eventually, but <laughs> you I didn't know it would be came. now. I'm running out of friends and family members who don't have a dog for me to match them up with a dog. So, <laughs> so I'm yeah. so happy for you. He's such a good dog. He's such yeah, a, he's a good dog. He's and it was funny because he, yeah, he really is. Um, when when you posted a picture of him, I said, oh, you should keep him. He's he's extra cute. Like you've had all kinds of cute dogs, but this dog is extra cute. And you said, no, 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 no. And then my sister who is friends with you on Facebook yeah. all said, and this is the dog yeah. that you should get. And um, then I did. Yay. So. so fun. Yeah, we've had a good little run. We had three foster dogs right in a row that were really, really good. And they were all tempting to keep uh, on their own merits. But three dogs is too many full time for is. good old Hallie here. So uh, <laughs> I'm fine temporarily having three dogs in the house, but full time too many. So Yeah, I don't know how, you, I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to foster anymore, I don't think, no, if you no. had that many, if, no. if you had four. Well, and even just the logistics of if we travel to see my parents, we bring the dogs with us. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. they, they don't mind. They like our dogs and they're fine with that. And I two dogs feels like it's pushing the limit of their patients, yeah. let alone three. I mean, just can't imagine. I feel like I'm sure people that have children are laughing at me right now, but I just feel like <laughs> I... I know, and I'm sure you'd get to know the third dog, but I just think that two dogs is a good amount for us for, you know, all time. And then we, it enables us to be able to foster and, right. and we're, we're able to keep the dogs apart if they're not getting along so well or play together if they are getting along well. And I feel like the more you get that are your permanent dogs, the more they become a pack. And then I think it yeah. becomes harder for the foster dogs 
to uh, integrate into the household. So yeah, for, yeah. we're just going to keep two for, for a while, I think. Yeah, but I'm so happy smart. for you. And I'm happy for little Joseph, formerly known as Gnocchi. <laughs> Still what I call him, but I'll, I'll learn to call him Joseph. You can call him Gnocchi. It's, I don't, he'll, he'll be fine with that. Family gatherings, Anne. It's a sad year, I know, for a lot of people. They were expecting, I think, I think most of us in the U.S. were thinking when this all started that by now we would have a handle on the pandemic and we would be able right. to at least have holidays in some fashion with our family. And it's becoming more apparent. In fact, the CDC just said yesterday or today that they don't recommend traveling at all. Right. Um, so... Instead, we're going to talk about books with family gatherings. And I think I have established in the past how much I enjoy books about families. And I think I always say dysfunctional families especially. But generally, I like stories that have to do with family relationships, sibling relationships, the parent-child relationships, of especially parent-child relationships of adult children. I just find those mm -hmm. all fascinating to read about. I tend to get very invested in the characters and their uh, storylines. So I was so excited that I think we were planning on doing this topic last year and didn't for some reason. Yeah, I can't remember why we changed. I but, can't either, but, but we did. And so this yeah. year, it seemed even more appropriate that we talk about uh, books where you get that family feeling and uh, maybe for some people, if you aren't close with your family, it's more fun to read about a family than right. it is actually to attend uh, any sort of family gathering. Well, that's what I think is fun about these because it it's such a huge range mm -hmm. of of experiences mm -hmm. with with these kinds of books because you can have very congenial family gatherings mm -hmm. or um, very um, tempestuous family gatherings mm -hmm. and obviously you want some sort of conflict because that's what a book hangs on but it's it's fun it, it, looking over my books it was fun to think of it in different ways and and what getting together as a family can mean mm -hmm. in different contexts so um I think that's probably true of many people for their their thanksgivings mm -hmm. as well but yeah. for some people it's a really fun um joyful experience and for others it's something that they dread every year yes so. yeah yeah you know you hear those stories about people who just have really fraught relationships with family members or right. it, I mean, there's sort of that age-old thing about going to thanksgiving if you're single and having to be asked right. you know are you dating anybody yet and how right. horrible that is when you're single and i, I think it's just always kind of interesting to hear about how other people I know a lot of people might what Thanksgiving well no I think Christmas is my favorite holiday but I do really love Thanksgiving and I know a lot of people who think of Thanksgiving as their favorite holiday because it's all about just being together and yeah. it doesn't have the pressure of buying presents or anything like that with that some other holidays do so it's interesting to me when some of these books that we're going to be talking about one of my books in particular is all about how tense of a thanksgiving it is and the how nobody's really looking forward to gathering and my experience is the opposite is i love thanksgiving and i love being able to get together with my family and um yeah. sad that that's not gonna necessarily happen this year so yeah yeah it's lots of of new experiences that we're all yeah. Getting to know yep. very quickly. We're all doing it together. I mean, yeah. nobody's, <clears throat> nobody's getting the good end of the situation by any means. Yeah. So, uh, all right. Uh, well, do you want to go ahead and share your first one? Or is there more you wanted ah. to say about this topic? Um, no, I'll, I'll just go okay. ahead. Um, I guess I should preface by saying that mine are not exactly uh, 
traditional family gatherings for the most part. So um, that's just how my my books ended up. So, yeah, mine aren't uh, all either. Mine aren't all yeah. either. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, so my first book is The Last List of Miss Judith Kratt by uh, Andrea Bobotis. And this is a dual timeline novel, and we, we've said many times how much we love those. Mm-hmm. So this begins in uh, 1989 when Judith Kratt is a 75-year-old woman, and she hasn't left home for decades, but she's being cared for by a black woman named Olva, who you find out um, through the course of the novel has been in Judith's life since she was very young. So she's kind of her employee, but kind of her companion, and that basically makes for a... a an odd relationship because it's still unequal but also um very close so judith receives a postcard from her younger sister rosemary that she's coming home after 60 years and they haven't seen each other in all that time and she decides that before rosemary arrives she is going to do an inventory of the family mansion and this this house used to be the jewel of the the um town where she lives it's called bound which is a fictional south carolina town and the Kratt family had been incredibly prosperous and influential in that town and in the 1920s when which is the the second timeline the town was flourishing because it was the center of the cotton industry and the family owned a huge department store that was extremely um forward thinking in its technology and and was giant like like a four-story department store and judith's father daddy kratt was the landlord over much of the town so judith was a a very responsible teenager and she was trusted to inventory the store and take people on on tours of it um and her younger sister rosemary was was very flighty and that that sort of plays out in her leaving for 60 years but then they also had a brother named quincy who is this a really despicable tattletale who eavesdropped on people around town to try to get information to tell his father who would then use it against them to basically blackmail people to um, retain control over them. And so um, it, he was both beloved and and despised and seen as very ruthless in uh, everything he would do to get control over people and, and very manipulative. And he had a son who tried to be just like him. So... Um, so that's that's the the setup for the the uh, second timeline. So as Miss Miss Judith and Olva are are uh, starting this inventory, each item that they find reminds Judith of, of events from that the, those years in 1920s um, that impacted both of them, and they add up to show how one night in 1929. Um, really caused everything in in each of their lives to come to a head. So this is a book that's kind of less about the dynamics of a traditional family gathering and more about the ripple effects that one event can have over the, over the years, but because there's this this event of of Rosemary coming back home, it really focuses on how reunions of family members can force those ripples to be addressed and um Rosemary has her own story of of or, or her own view of, of how those events uh, took place. And so, so you're kind of waiting for, for her to, to show up and reveal what she knows. So um, the dual timeline, of course, works really well with this kind of story, but it's also really interesting because the town has changed completely in those years. So when you're seeing it in the 1920s, it's, it's big and, and bustling. And now it's been largely abandoned and, and is sort of going through all of the issues that you see um written about so much of of southern poverty and and these formerly 
prosperous small towns um, and there's a lot of poverty and racial tension in the town and all of those are things that will come back to uh, impact this family. So that is the last list of Miss Judith Kratt by Andrea Bobotis. I've never heard of that book. I've never heard of that author. I don't know if it was her first book. Hmm. I'm not sure. I, I had to read it for work and it was, um, I picked it because it was South Carolina. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yeah. It was a, um, I, I always am really interested in, in books that have different groups that are forced to live together yeah. and and how that plays out. So, mm-hmm. um, and I love books about kind of Miss um, Havisham mm-hmm. type characters mm-hmm. too. So, so it, it served both those purposes for me. Oh, good. Well, my first one is The Turner House by Angela Flournoy. And this is stretching the family, gather- <laughs> the family gathering uh, theme a little bit. Um, it is about a family who comes together because uh, they're they are trying to figure out what to do with their family home. Uh, there are 13 siblings in the, the Turner family and the house they grew up in is in Detroit it, and it's now underwater on the mortgage. Or is that what they say? Underwater? I don't know. I thought you meant literally. Yeah, no, not literally. It's <laughs> like they owe more on their mortgage than the house would be worth to sell. Oh, so, okay. okay. I don't know what that's called, but... I think it's under... I think that's... Anyway... Regardless, I just explained what it is, so we don't have to think of whatever the phrase is. Um, So their father passed away a few years before, and the mother is ailing. And so these 13 adult siblings have to figure out what the next step is. And as you would imagine, with 13 people and trying to figure out what to do, they have a variety of opinions and different alliances and factions pop up between the different siblings and some are naturally more aligned and closer to others than some other segments of the the children. So there's just all this inherent drama that comes from trying to get 13 people on the same page about what to do. And so the reason I'm saying this stretches the theme a little bit is because, yes, they all come together to figure it out. But then the, the novel goes back in time to share the history of the family so you learn about how the mother and father met and their early marriage and you can see where all the kids came from and their different past experiences and how the house really symbolizes more than just the structure of the house it's very representative about their identity you know it's their identities are really wrapped up in how they grew up and where they grew up and because there are so many children there's quite a disparity between how each of them was raised. So the one who's the oldest is quite a bit older than the youngest. So it's almost like they were raised in different generations by their parents because when they, when the oldest was born, his parents were young and figuring things out. And by the time the youngest is born, the older kids are almost raising the younger kids. They're almost parental figures to the younger kids. So you right. just get this this really complex look at how all these members of the family can look at their growing up experiences as and, and see them so vastly differently um, and how based on that and based on where they are now in life as adults, um, they have very different opinions about what to do with the house. And if I'm remembering correctly, one of the, either the very youngest child or one of the younger children is having, um, I think she's had some issues with drug addiction. And so she actually has moved back into the house unknowing 
Like nobody else in the family knows that. And she's <gasps> living there uh, kind of secretly because the houses around there are just falling apart. It's a very sort of destitute area. And so she's just living there because she needs a place to stay. And so that adds a whole big bit of complication to it. Um, so it's a really, I found it to be a really rich look at what families families under stress like what that can be yeah. like for them and in a very real situation where the parents found themselves in this mortgage situation that they never expected to they thought it was going to be a good investment and it turned out not to be and if I'm remembering correctly they pulled some money out of the house at one point because again the, the sort of presiding knowledge about buying houses for many many years was they always appreciated in value and right. so it felt like it was a very safe thing to buy a house and even stretch a little bit to buy that house or pull money out of it if you had equity because it was always going to appreciate and then uh, of course that's not always always true anymore so um so yeah i thought this was a really good book it came out about five years ago uh and it was a pretty popular book at the time um mm -hmm. so People might, may have heard of it, but if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to pick it up because I do think if you like family stories, this is a unique take on that family dynamic because it does revolve around this one house and, and the house almost becomes like, I mean, it's sort of cliche, but the house almost becomes a character of, of <laughs> how they all relate to the house and how much influence it had on their um, growing up. So that's The Turner House by Angela Flordoy. I think that's a perfectly fine family gathering book. I accept. Well, thank you. You know what I mean? Because it doesn't it doesn't all revolve around one event. It's like right. it, it, my, they do gather. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think I think it's fine. Okay, thank you. I well it's, it's done. I, I it's done. People... Whoever is judging our <laughs> podcast for truth and accuracy is going Someone to be. Someone turns the podcast off. <laughs> Like, this isn't really about family <laughs> gatherings. Delete. How dare they? <laughs> oh, what's oh, your it next does one? crack me up. Oh, well, I was going to say, it cracks me up because as you, we're both youngest children, you right. and I, but there's a an eight-year gap between me and my next sibling. And so I constantly hear, you grew up in a different uh -huh. ha uh, family, essentially, than, than uh, the rest of the, the kids in the family. So um, I identify with that hard on on that book so I yeah. should read that because I, I don't see that perspective very often yeah that's funny because so my sister my oldest sister is eight years older than me and in some ways I do think my parents became more lenient uh, as I came into uh, teenagerdom compared mm -hmm. to her but my mom is from a family of five and a, an Italian Catholic family and she is the youngest daughter, but the second youngest of that family. And they feel that way. Her siblings do. There are three older, you know, the, there's a little bit of a gap between the younger two and then the older three. And the older three feel like the younger two had a super easy compared to yeah. them because <laughs> it felt like it was two different, uh, two different, you know, households basically that they grew up in. So yeah. it's funny. Someday we'll do a, an episode on just on sibling relationships, yeah. I think, because I, those are my favorite. Yeah. And I I can't get enough talk about sibling <laughs> yeah. relationships in, in real life and in books. Yes, I agree with that one. Okay, so next um, is The Misfortunes of Family by Meg Little Riley. And this is about a family of a retired 
Massachusetts senator named John Bright, and he gathers the the family every year at the lake house that they own in the Berkshires, and they spend the summer there. So the the so he's there, um, the the senator John and his wife Patty, and they have four attractive and charismatic adult sons, and then they bring their partners and their kids, and um, the the partner that the partners you hear the most about are. Uh, one son's wife, uh, Mary Beth, and then another son has a boyfriend uh, named Ian, and they call themselves the extras because the family, the the nuclear family, is so insular and just cliched all-American as as you can possibly imagine. So um, when I was reading this, I kept imagining Mitt Romney's family with sort of his strapping young sons mm-hmm. um, and and all of their spouses and kids. So so John has agreed to, uh, for this summer, to host a film crew that are going to be there to make a documentary about him. And so the perspective of the book moves largely between the filmmaker Farah and the the two partners, the extras. So you, the perspective that you're getting is always an outsider of the family looking in, which which sort of keeps this veneer up all the time, which I thought was really well done. So this this family just exudes american perfection and they they always have a good front and so the partners of the sons are the only people who know of any issues that are going on and they they know that their individual uh, partners have turmoil beneath the surface and that they each have their struggles and that that they're keeping secrets from the rest of the family because they they just don't talk about these kinds of things. So when they get to the the summer house, the youngest son who is unpartnered, um, his name is Philip, and he tells the family that he has something to share with them. And when he tells them this thing, which I I won't reveal, it completely baffles them and shocks them. And they have a really strong reaction that is caught on film by Farah. And that's, that's not what they intended for this film to be. So it's, it's kind of, uh, taking things off the rails a little bit than the, more than they had expected. So once he tells that information, there's kind of fallout from that, but instantly they have to move on quickly because they turn on the news and there's there's reports of a ter- terrorist attack that has um, taken place at the Madrid airport where two of the bright grandchildren were flying through on their way to soccer camp. And so there's just chaos in this family and this is all being caught on film. And so far I can see how the real emotions that this family is experiencing are being manipulated and molded into something that's camera ready because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And so instantly John gets on the phone and starts to give public statements and um, they can't experience any of this, this um, potential tragedy within the family. It all has to be shared with the world. So this is all unfolding on television and John is respo- responding in a very public way. And then he reveals that he's considering another political run and is speculating on how he can use this tragedy to play into that. So that leads to unsurprisingly uh, widely disparate reactions from different members of the family because some some feel like this is a terrible idea and uh, others are all on board with him. So so basically, this is a family that when things are are going well, they get along perfectly. But then as soon as anything is mm-hmm. is thrown into that, then the the narrative is thrown off off course and they have to they don't know how to react to that, which is a really interesting 
take on on the family perspective. So because these are these are outsiders looking in, it really heightens this artificiality. And it also shows how different family members don't have equal standing in the family. And people don't know what to do with with the family members that don't fit in with with the family's ambitions. So it's it's just interesting to see how these how these perspectives all play out. So when I think of a family gathering story, this is exactly the type of book that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm picturing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that it was it was a fun book to read to to sort of get that um, everything's good on on the surface right. and nothing is good underneath right. perspective that I, I find so fun to read about. So that is The Misfortunes of Family by Meg Little Riley. That sounds really good. I would love I would like that, I think. Yeah, it sounds very much up your alley. Yeah, for sure. So my next one is The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters by Bali Kaur Jaswal. And people might know this author because her first book was, uh, oh shoot, what was it? The Erotic Erotic oh, Stories yeah. of Punjabi Widows, I think is it yes, was called. Yes, I think so. That made the rounds, I think, when that first came out. So this is her yeah. second book. And um, for this one, it's actually two of my favorite things because it's people taking a trip together and it's family coming together after a long time <laughs> apart. So it's just the perfect storm of things. Um, and so it's about three sisters whose mother has just passed away. And it was her dying wish that these that her daughters would travel from England, which is where they definitely where they were raised. I think that they were born there as well. Um, but travel from England to India to do a pilgrimage and sh- spread her ashes. Excuse me, I couldn't think of the word spread. Uh, so they're <laughs> going to go to India to scatter her ashes. Um, and and the, the, their mother was very specific and detailed about what she wanted them to do while they were there. It's a very, it's like a day-by-day itinerary. First, you're going to do go here, you're going to do this, then you're going to do this, then you're going to do that. And none of the sisters really want, want to go. And it's not because they don't respect their mother's wishes. It's not because they didn't love their mother. It's because they all have elements of their lives that make dropping everything and traveling for several weeks to India difficult. They just they don't want to. And they've also grown apart. Uh, they were never particularly close. And then one has moved to Australia. And so they don't see each other very often. And um, there's sort of the, the, the youngest of the family feels like she's always kind of the baby of the family and she doesn't like that she doesn't like that her sisters tell her what to do so they've just all they've all got their sort of shared history of past slights that they have grown apart they just don't really like being together so but they're going to do it they decide um yes this is something that their their mother wanted and it might be awkward but they're gonna going to go and do it and so they start out the trip by bickering quite a lot. In fact, when it first started, I was like, how fun is this going to be to read? Because <laughs> they're they're just sort of, it was really clear. It was really well done. They don't particularly enjoy spending time together. But the more time they spend together, the more they start realizing that they do have these bonds that, that keep them together and draw them back together. And, and they start realizing that they have things going on in each of their individual lives that are that are more difficult, they could maybe help each other through them. And uh, one of the sisters is particularly withdrawn and kind of quiet. And so the other two almost team up to try to help her or figure out so that that bonds them. 
And so um, they start to understand each other and they also start to understand their mother more because one of the goals is that they don't realize until they're on the trip is that their mother wanted them to understand what she did to when she moved uh, from India to England and being an immigrant in a new country, what that was like for her. And so you learn a little bit about the, the history of what their mother's life was like, too, along with this road trip kind of novel for the the three sisters. And so there's a lot, part of the reason I liked it, there's a lot here about being a woman and what that's like, the expectations of being a woman uh, in today's world. And then also just about grief, they're mourning the loss of their mother, about love and family and loyalty and all those things that I love about family books. Um, and part of why this novel stuck with me, I read this a year or two ago, I think, uh, was because it's told with a lot of warmth and humor. There's a real sympathy for the characters, I felt like. Um, so even though even though they have flaws or that you're reading about them and understanding maybe why this the other sisters are annoyed, you're you're still sympathetic towards them. And so I just really thought it was it was a nicely done book and it moves it moves through the story at a nice pace. so um, Partly, I think, because it's a book about taking a trip and there's always something new every day. There's like a new thing happening. And so I really liked it. It's called The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters by Bali Cower Jaswal. That sounds so good. Yeah, I wanted to read as when I actually maybe it wasn't even a full year ago that I read this. Maybe I read this this year. I don't remember. But um, when I finished it, I thought I definitely want to go back and read her first one because I liked it a lot. I don't think I ever read her first one either. I'd have to go back and check but I don't think I did I think because of the title it it just was memorable and I so I remember yeah. when it was I feel like it was a Reese Witherspoon book pick and I um for her book club and I always yeah. pay attention to those and and I think that at the time I thought oh I should read that and then just too much to read too little time and but yeah. when I read this I thought yeah I definitely want to go back and read that at some point cool 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 um Okay, so my last book is The Other Woman by Sandy Jones, and this is not really a, a formal family gathering novel, but I picked it because it hits on the same issues, which is meeting the in-laws. And I think that for many people, um, that whether it's it takes place at a, a formal or a, a dinner or more casually or, or whatever, mm -hmm. that's that's still bringing up the same issues that you, you get at, at any kind of family gathering where there's there's lots of tension. So um, it's about a woman named Emily and she's very successful at work, but she has had awful luck in relationships. And so she is out with her team. Um, they're, they're negotiating a contract of some sort and they go, they take a break to go out to a pub. Um, this is in London. And she strikes up a conversation with a handsome man named Adam who's at the bar and they have a great conversation and there's obvious chemistry and so they exchange cards and so when they get together uh, he's amazing and he's everything that she's ever wanted in a relationship and he matches her ambition and and he's driven in his own life and there's a really intense physical chemistry together so um, so eventually they become a couple and as things get more serious he he invites her to meet his mom Pammy and she is a widow and she is very close to her sons and because of her uh, widow status then he then Adam does a lot for her um, just in keeping her household running so when I I 
think of this character I picture, there's there's a type of woman who's on the Great British Bake Off that <laughs> I can totally imagine as this this woman um, because she's a little bit dowdy and she's very sweet and she's lived her entire life basically to make her her sons happy and now she gets to be doted on by them so um so they they just have a very intense mother-son relationship so she instantly takes a dislike to emily and she makes a lot of passive aggressive comments to her and does things that make her look bad in front of Adam and then when she's around Emily on her own she's openly hateful to her okay. like like just really really frustrating things to to read about but then um if Emily says something to Adam then she claims otherwise and she plays the victim and so it just makes for for all kinds of terrible conversations so um because he he doesn't like how uh, Emily and and Pammy are are interacting together. He begins to pull away, Adam begins to pull away, and um, Emily starts to become drawn to his brother James because he's a little less involved with with Pammy, and he sort of becomes her only ally in the family because he sees a little bit more of what's going on. So she she ends up spending more and more time with him and that in turn complicates her relationship with adam even more so despite all of these glaring red flags they get engaged and for some reason emily decides that once they're married she can get rid of she can make sure that pammy isn't part of their lives which i truly don't understand that thought process but this is this is how it happens in the book and so as she as getting closer to the wedding, she begins to become more and more obsessed with how she can get rid of Pammy. And, um, but she's also starting to feel crazy because Adam is blaming her for things that, um, she feels he's, he's completely blind to his mother's manipulation and, and her lies. And so she's doubting herself and, and just in a, a very, um, tenuous mental state. So because this is a psychological suspense novel, you know that there's crazy to come. So, um, and there is crazy that, that happens. So I listened to this and it was just perfect for driving. It's, it's so much fun for, for that kind of bonkers, um, uh, like screaming at the, at the, uh, radio kind of thing where you're like, how can you say that <laughs> when, when right. she's, when the uh when Pammy is just doing terrible terrible things so um I will give a caveat that if you're someone named my sister who can't handle books about women not using their words and people not communicating then this is not the book for you um because there is an awful lot of that in this book where you you just want to throttle Emily for not saying this is this is what just happened but um but if you can get past that then it's it's a really fun romp for for uh any kind of road trip or beach read or something like that so that is the other woman by sandy jones i want to read that that sounds really good it's pretty fun <laughs> sounds so good yeah. um all right so my last one is strangers at the feast by jennifer vanderbees and i'm going to ward everybody right up front i read this when it came out which was 2010 so i am sorry if i muddle some of the details but i hope <laughs> to get at least the general idea of it right um, so I couldn't, as soon as we decided we were going to talk about this and we were going to talk about it the week before Thanksgiving, I knew I had to talk about this book because it all takes place on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, it's it's very much a reflection of its time, I would say, because much of it is, a, much of the ultimate story is about the housing crash and the, um, the you know, that happened in like 2008, Eight. right? Yeah. And then the yeah. resulting economic 
decline because of that. So just just know that going in. And I'm not sure if you read it in 2020, if there might be anything that feels a little cringy or anything. But I, I will say that at the time, I thought it was a very riveting book. Um, and I still do think it has relevance today. I'm just doing that as a caveat that sometimes things, uh, there are some race issues in this book, and I don't know how those will age. I'll just say that. Um, we've learned a lot in the last 10 years. We have learned a lot. I hope. I hope we've learned a <laughs> lot in the last 10 years. Yeah. So I just am going to say that I haven't, this is a book I read at the time, so I can't speak to if there's anything about it that would be uh, upsetting or offensive at, at this point. So, but I had to talk about it because it is about this woman uh, named Jenny Olson who is hosting Thanksgiving for her family. I think it might be for the first time she's ever hosted. I don't remember. But she's 35 years old and she's single and she's a professor. And recently she pretty impulsively decided to adopt a young orphan from India who is mute, uh, who doesn't speak. So I think it's the first time her family is meeting her new daughter and she's is feeling a little bit defensive about preparing ahead of time for the fact that her family is going to be judgmental that she made this decision uh, pretty spontaneously. She she also, as a professor, I think it's a, she's a professor of anthropology, uh, but she likes to share the the origins of Thanksgiving and the genocide that came along with that, which her family do- doesn't always appreciate in their family <laughs> gatherings. Um, and then she has a brother who was... Um, he invested heavily in real estate and then uh, it all happened right before the bubble burst. And so he has lost a whole bunch of money and is very upset about that. He had this big plan to do knock down a housing development and build up this commercial area. And then it all just completely fell apart. So they are dealing with feelings of anger and loss because of that. And then her mom and dad, from what I remember, are pretty well-meaning, which is kind of clueless. And so not always reading the dynamics of the room. And her dad was in Vietnam and, and is a pretty taciturn guy and kind of keeps to himself and is, is um, has some PTSD from being in Vietnam, but just has never been open about that. Um, anyway, so basically you have a pretty normal setup for just a regular dysfunctional family gathering here, right? You know, you have people coming from different perspectives and coming together and you just expect that that's going to be the story. But what happens is that the oven at Jenny's house stops working. So they all have to relocate uh, to her brother's house at the last minute. But what they don't realize is that there were two black teenagers, one of whom had lived in that housing development that the that was torn down for the commercial development. Um, and they have these two black teenagers have broken into Douglas, Douglas's home, not just to just to cause some trouble, basically, just to like mess with him a little bit because he's mad. He's mad that he did this, that he took his house. The teenagers don't expect the family to be there. They think they've left to go celebrate Thanksgiving. And the family has no idea that there are these teenagers in the house. And so you, there's just so much tension as you realize that these two groups of people are going to come together and clash and what's going to happen what's going to happen when this family figures out that they're these two kids have broken in it's just really full of the tension of the interpersonal dynamics but then also this setup for a potentially really terrible interaction with uh, home invasion so um, I would say it's not 
really psychological suspense by any means. It's more on the melancholy side of things, but there is that t- underlying tension and that sense of unease um, that I that I like a lot. Um, and so it's not the happiest of family gathering books, <laughs> I wouldn't say, but it's a uh, it's certainly a riveting read, and it. it it kept me turning the pages at the time. So that is Strangers at the Feast by Jennifer Vanderbees. We didn't pick any um, happy family I know books. I guess because they're not interesting. Well, so it's funny. I actually did have one in mind, but it was about a wedding. And I thought, my guess is at some point we're going to do a wedding as a topic, potentially. Because there's oh. like, well, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, I no we totally can i was just, I just thinking, got excited well no because i was thinking i was like i was i thought of that book and then i thought oh that would be a good topic because there are a lot of books that kind of revolve around weddings yeah right yeah, yeah. that would be a really fun no you're you're totally right I, I wasn't trying to sound sarcastic i was just was doing my my ooh <laughs> sounds that i do all the time anyway so and that one would have been on the happier side of things but yeah i um yeah, we kind of went for dysfunctional family yeah. gatherings. Well, there was there was another book that I looked at that was about a wedding as well, but I read it so long ago that I couldn't, I, I knew that without being able to, to actually flip through the book, I wouldn't be able to talk about mm-hmm. it. So um, maybe I'll I'll check it out from the library and be ready for, for we can do that in June or something. Yeah, we'll do it wedding season. <laughs> oh, so fun. All right, well, we'll be right back with what we're reading this week. Okay, Anne, what are you reading this week? I am reading Big Summer by Yay! Jennifer Weiner. I like that book a lot. Didn't <laughs> yeah, I talk about it? you recommended it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you had talked about it on the podcast, but it so wasn't I. in the, the notes. Huh. I don't know. I mean, I went through the whole archive. I trust you. I just could have sworn we talked about it and you said maybe you would listen to it when you drove to your sister's, but maybe right. that was a different book. It might have been. No, it was that book because that's why because my hold finally came in, which oh. is why I'm, I'm talking about it now um, instead of when I when I uh, thought I would read it earlier this year. But um, hmm. I think that maybe we just talked about it offhand. Because, oh, OK. Because it, it isn't in the archive and I, I have to believe in the archive. Yes. Otherwise, I don't know what we would do. <laughs> yeah, I have to, too, because that's the only way I know if I've talked about something. I know. So if if you're an astute listener, then maybe you can tell us if we're wrong, and um, we'll appreciate that. So I um, have to say, there are times where a podcast I listen to will go through a conversation like this, and as the listener, I'm like, yes, you talked about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I often listen, like I'll get behind on a podcast and I'll listen to a bunch of episodes in a row. So what yeah. has been a month or two for the people recording the podcast has right, been just right. a day for me. Right. Anyway, sorry. That's my little we could have a corrections corner. We could on, have a corrections on, uh, corner. Which, did I ever do my corrections corner? I don't think so. Of, oh, can I do it now? Yeah, yeah, go for it. So we when we talked about uh, When No One Is Watching, the the Alyssa Cole book, mm-hmm. I said that I had read an essay that she wrote and that she was basing the book on her essay. And then I went back, then when I listened to the book, I was like, I've, li- I've heard all of this before. And I realized that what I had actually read was the first chapter of her book. So my apologies. To well, and I had a corrections corner for the same book because I said something about she ran a tour or something like that. I don't know. I don't even remember what my wrong thing was really anymore, but it was 
It, I just was wrong. So I was wrong yeah. about something that I said about that book. So we both were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> you get what you pay for, apparently. Like, like we're uh, not uh, professional podcasters it's like, around it's here. It's just like that. It's just like we do that as a side, do this as like a side hobby. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so so back to Big Summer. Um, This was not the book I was expecting when I I picked it up. It it goes places. So I won't reveal any of those things, but uh, just be aware it goes places. So it's about a woman named Daphne, and she's a plus size influencer in New York City. And she posts her daily fashion photos and inspiration on how she learned to love herself when the world is telling her that she's flawed. And she's gained thousands of followers by doing this and is seen as a great role model for kind of an ignored demographic on on Instagram, which is very much about... um, shiny surfaces so she started a blog called big time after her her best friend drew drew kavanaugh uh humiliated her at a club one night by setting her up with a guy who seemed genuine um it it was someone that that approached her but then uh daphne finds out that drew actually knows him and that uh she overhears the two of them talking about how he's their grenade which apparently is the guy who takes one for the team while the other groups of people so his friends and her friends can get together and and hook up and so um Daphne loses it and tells him off and that moment is filmed and and goes viral online and so she goes home and decides that she's done dieting and she's done feeling bad about herself and she's she's done with having all of her energy sucked away by trying to be something that she doesn't care about anymore so um, as she's leaving the situation, Drew tells her that she did it because she's always felt sorry for her. And that really touches a nerve that that Daphne has always sort of secretly been nursing because Drew is ultra rich and beautiful and basically the, the queen bee of their exclusive private school where Daphne is a scholarship student and and has somehow um, ended up in a, a friendship with with. Uh, Drew, but it's very manipulative. And sometimes she knows that Drew is using her and sometimes she knows that it's something genuine and she's she's just always had a, a really conflicting uh, feeling about it. But, um, but this moment breaks them. And so Daphne cuts off all contact and it, over the next six years, she completely blossoms and is happy with her life and develops her blog and her Instagram. And um, she's made this name for herself and she has really great things on the horizon. And then suddenly Drew ambushes her at her uh, day job nannying and she asks to talk. And so Drew um, says that she's highly successful and and Daphne is aware of this because she's, she's always in the society pages and she's um, uh, an executive at her family's company and, and just is doing very, very well for herself. And she has recently become engaged to, um, a man who was on a dating reality show, but left his girlfriend from that show to date Drew. So um, it's just the talk of of um, Hollywood in New York City. So Drew tells Daphne that for all of this, she doesn't have anyone to be her bridesmaid because she's lived her life in a way that has really alienated people. And so she's having to resort to people like her hairdresser and... Um, her assistant and and people like that. And so she doesn't have any genuine friends that she can ask. Um, And so she uh, apologizes for what she did and says that she's changed. And Daphne reluctantly agrees to this and decides that she'll get great exposure for her Instagram and she'll get to go to this fantastic Cape Cod wedding. That's sort of what um, you would see in, in a Martha Stewart uh, magazine spread. So um, 
so that's where I'll stop, I think, because I think that anything more will just mm-hmm. say too much. It'll, it will get too close to, to things that I don't want to say. So, mm-hmm. um, But I will say that this book combines several elements of what I want in a dishy summer read mm-hmm. into one book mm-hmm. and kind of disparate elements that you're you're not expecting to go together mm-hmm. and it's completely addictive mm-hmm. I, I'm listening to it and I haven't had much time to listen this week with with um dealing with Joseph and and trying to figure all of that out and it's just killing me because this book is so addictive to listen to so um if you haven't gotten your hands on it I would recommend it and it is called Big Summer by Jennifer Weiner. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend the audiobook. That's how I listened as well. And I yeah, thought that it's the really good. audio was really good and just pulled me along the whole way. Like I just Yeah. I I don't know how else to say it. Like it just sucked me in and I just couldn't wait to get back to listening to it. So Yeah. There's there's a surprise in it uh-huh. that made me gasp out loud yeah. because sometimes when I read I can skim ahead a tiny bit and Yeah. Or I, I, you know, flip to the back to see how many pages are in the book and something is spoiled for me or mm-hmm. whatever. And in audio, that's not possible. Right. And so the reveal that happens in this was was very impactful. Yeah. So it's really fun. Yeah. Um, all right. So what I'm reading this week is Plain Bad Heroines by Emily oh, M. Yay. Danforth. Yeah. Uh, you've read this, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So not I'm about a little over halfway through, I would say. <clears throat> It's a big book. It is a very big book. I know I need to finish it. I need to be reading other things, but I, it's good. I don't want to skim it. It's because it's got a lot going on. So it's sort of a horror. It's, it's horror, I would say. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, but it's all. It's got a historical storyline to it, and it's got a lot of humor to it, and so it's just a hybrid of different kinds very of books meta. and very meta yes yes I was gonna comment on that so um oh, but, sorry no no that's okay no, no I'm glad you said it but so there are three storylines basically um because then there's like a another I'll, I'll get to it anyway there are three storylines <laughs> that are all linked together which I love you know we've talked before that's the there's a current day storyline that all, that links to things in the past so in this one it's all about a boarding school for girls that is claim to be cursed. And so all of the storylines revolve around that. Okay, so one of the storylines takes place in 1902 and uh, at the boarding school, and it's about two girls who were in love and uh, died under somewhat suspicious circumstances, I would say. And then <laughs> in the present day, there's a storyline about somebody making a movie based on a book about, or yes, Based on a book about that those deaths. Right. But what not everybody who's involved in the movie knows is that there's also a movie being made about the filming of this movie. And they're going to, the director's going to intersperse somehow the making of the film with the actual film about this 1902 situation at the boarding school. And then there's another storyline about the founding of the school. And so what potentially has happened that made it uh that caused it to be known as being cursed to be going away and that <laughs> sounds way more complicated <laughs> than it is but it's yeah just, it really does it, it's it's totally it's easy to follow when you're reading right but there's right. also a real memoir that actually exists in our world <laughs> 
we could go to the library tomorrow and pick it up called I Await the Devil's Coming, which seems somehow to be connected to the deaths in 1902, that all the um, these girls were reading it and when they'd be found, they'd have the book and then when they were found and when they uh, had died, the book would be missing. And so there's something having to do with this book as well. So uh, you have these all these storylines that so far are just sort of like separate distinct storylines, but I trust that they will be linked at some point. Um, and it's just all really good and creepy, and there's a, a commentary on what is real and what is manufactured based on who is telling the story, um, what impact it has of the person who is the originator of the story, I guess I can say. And I, I'm personally enjoying probably the modern day storyline the most, but I think they're all really well done. And when it switches from one to another storyline, I don't think to myself, oh, no, I wanted to stay in the other one. Although there is one point uh, where the author. So the, one of the things is the author is constantly talking to the reader. So mm -hmm. it'll, it will say, you know, reader, I'll come back to this later because I know you want to find out what's about to happen. And there was one point at the end of a chapter where she did that and she said, you know, something's about to happen. And then she goes to the next chapter and it's a historical, the historical storyline. And she says, reader, I know you want to know what happened in that room, but I'll get back to it. And then she doesn't get back to it for like 50 <laughs> pages. And that was the only time that I was like, no, I want to know what happened in that room. But she's so skillful at the way she's, sort of pulls all the threads out slowly. So you're just paying attention to what's going on in that storyline. And then you go back to the other storyline. You're like, oh, yeah, that's what was happening there. And, um, it's really good. It's really creepy. And there's this, it's horror the way I like horror, which is nothing too right. gory. It's just all about um, this this creepy unease and, and yeah, I, dread. Yeah, yeah, dread. And so um, I'm really, really enjoying it. Like I said, I mean, it's probably a, 700 page book I think um and at this point I should probably be skimming it because I have a whole bunch of other books I need to read before the end of November but uh I am reading every single word of this because I'm just enjoying <laughs> it that much so this is Plain Bad Heroines by Emily M. Danforth that's that's a book that I read on my uh reading my birthday reading vacation oh fun um, which was very perfect but did I did I tell you I don't think I would have told you because you hadn't read it yet but there's a lot of uh, yellow jacket oh yeah uh, symbolism in the book and as I was reading that book there was a yellow jacket <gasps> that hovered around me the entire time and then when I was done it went away no yes oh my gosh that's like something that would happen in the book I know it was so creepy so it was and I was really isolated where I was and and my sister came back and forth so I, sometimes I was by myself for for the entire day and night and so reading that book was deliciously creepy but sometimes at night it was just creepy oh my gosh yeah I can I mean that literally there's a scene in the book where they have yellow jackets in the person's apartment or in the right. in her house just to freak her out basically right yeah oh my gosh <laughs> yeah. all right well uh, that's it for us so let's go back and say what uh list off all the books we talked about today Okay, so I talked about The Last List of Miss Judith Kratt by Andrea Bobotis, The Misfortunes of Family by Meg Little-Riley, The Other Woman by Sandy Jones, and what I'm reading this week is Big Summer by Jennifer Weiner. And I talked about The Turner House by Angela Flournoy, The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters by Bali Kaur Jaswal, 
Strangers at the Feast by Jennifer Vanderbees. And what I'm reading this week is Plain Bad Heroines by Emily M. Danforth. If you'd like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, or on Instagram at wellreadpodcast. Uh, If you could, we'd love it if you could rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast provider of choice because it really helps people find the show. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at wellreadpodcast.wordpress.com where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this episode and I hope a picture of Joseph for anybody that wants to see a picture of Joseph Ann. (laughs) Him him, um, looking at me with Google. Yes, yes. Um, Thank you all for listening. Happy reading and have a good Thanksgiving.